And welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. I have to be honest, I've never paid much attention to Generation X, Y or Z and how different generations fit into the workplace or life in general. Until, that is, I had the pleasure of meeting Adam Kingle, an American academic, author, educator and advisor living in London. Adam has an encyclopedic knowledge of the executive education field and is an expert in the expectations of the youngest generations in our workplace. Listen to Adam speak has actually given me a real insight into my own children aged 18 and 13, both Gen Z and their expectations from the world. And by 2025, Gen Y, those aged between 20 and 40, are estimated to represent 75% of the global workforce. So a great understanding of how they think is really, really important. Adam's first book, Next Generation Leadership, gives a fascinating evidence-based look at how organisations can attract, motivate and retain young millennials and keep the diverse, fresh talent that's critical for companies to compete and thrive. And it explains what practices to adopt to hold on to that talent. Adam's next book, Sparking Success, is out next April and is about what business can learn from the creative industries. Adam, it's lovely to see you again. I kid you not, I'm having chats with Francesca and Jack that are making much more sense to me after listening to you on stage. Oh, that's very rewarding to hear. Thank you. <laughs> can you start just by talking us through what the different generations mean? Because I did wander around through life in a bit of a I heard people talking about Gen Y, Gen Z, and didn't really pay any attention as to what that actually meant. Well, there are three generations reliably in the workforce right now, baby boomers, Gen X, and Gen Y. And Gen Y and millennials I use interchangeably, so same thing. And a, a generation is the product of the context in which they were raised. So clearly, you know, every couple of decades, the context changes dramatically enough that one's views about life and work and careers how we play, what we want to get out of our existence changes and has to do with all those different things. Parenting paradigms, whether it was a period of economic uh, surplus or want, whether political dynasties and institutions were being held up or being torn down, etc. And when those paradigms are different enough, we then say, okay, well, there's, there's now a new generation that enters the workforce. So it's really important for leaders to manage uh, the multi-generational workforce and have that empathy among the different, those different paradigms. So today, it's very different to my mum and dad's generation, for example, who seem to work nine to five, come home, have meat and two veg, work 40 years, get a humble pension and a carriage clock for the mantelpiece. That presumably was a generation of its own, was it? Absolutely. That's probably uh, the silent generation that you're referring to. And, and of course, one of the big paradigm differences is that was a generation that didn't have to deal with all the digital issues that we do now. And of course, digital has created lots of wonderful efficiencies and access and uh, global connectedness. However, it also allowed you to go home and switch off. And since we don't do that anymore, our generation Gen X was a generation that adopted digital nativism. But of course, the true digital natives are, are the Gen Ys or, or millennials. And as a result of that, because they are switched on all the time, they don't really think about these membranes between work and life. It's all one 
peace, isn't it? Uh, it is. So that, that's it a huge difference. Stops. And yeah. was that then one of the tipping points that changed the sort of nine to five working culture of the silent generation and gave the next generation different expectations and a working, different working life? Yeah, it absolutely was. It's a great question because you've, you've asked me to think. So what was the, what were the key, what were maybe the key switches that occurred in terms of the world of work? So why is the world of work so dramatically different than it was for our parents or grandparents? And one is the introduction of consumer digital access. Absolutely. Because of course there was no such thing as consumer digital. My, my dad did some computer programming when he was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, but that involved punch cards. I bet there are a few <laughs> listeners who, who know what I'm talking about. Oh, um, so that's one. And then the other is simply that with every new generation, there's an expectation that they're going to live longer than previous generations. And if you're going to live for a very long time, that inevitably begs the question, when can you afford to retire? Um, never is the answer, Adam. Never. And the answer is household. probably never. And and that completely changes one pers- one's perspective of what a career actually means. So you were talking about Monday to Friday, nine to five. That's one piece. And of course, the other piece is the idea of do you retire? And do you retire at 60, 65, 70, or indeed never? Yeah, it's amazing how many people I've met recently, particularly in the world of media. A Blue Peter presenter, which was a very famous children's program here in Britain, he's still working in his 80s. And I asked about retirement. Yeah. And he says, I can't afford to retire. He's keeping going even in his 80s. It's interesting you talk about digital natives. Obviously, my children are digital natives, almost born with an iPhone in their hands, pretty much. And they laugh at me, Adam, when I explain to them that in my 30s, I was working on breakfast television. And I actually remember somebody coming over to my desk, teaching me how to write and send an email. And they mock a little bit about that. But without our generation, there wouldn't be the internet for them to enjoy, would there? That's absolutely right. So take a bow, Gen Xs out there, because we created the digital economy, but we weren't born with it. So certainly the world has Gen X to thank for this digital world we live in. But because we didn't grow up with it, you're right, we had to make those adaptations, that evolution that our children and grandchildren did not. That simply was part of their wallpaper when they were growing up. That's that's a significant difference. Of course, there are plenty of Gen Xs in the workforce at the minute, ourselves included. Tell us a bit about the, the paradigms and, um, and what we're all about. Yeah. So, well, baby boomers, of course, the generation that's retiring, you know, that, that was much more of a traditional work view that they had. It's you know, the Monday to Friday, nine to five, that you'll retire sort of in your, you know, mid sixties, that you can afford to retire because, of course, their generation still had defined benefit pension schemes, which otherwise known as final salary schemes. So of course you can retire because you can calculate exactly how much money you're going to have year on year, and that will never run out. That is a massive difference between baby boomers and younger generations. Gen X, who are, of course, the majority now of the leaders, the CXOs in our organization, as I said, they're the inventors of the digital economy. They had to make huge adaptations in terms of what work consists of. When they started, there was still this view, when they started in the workforce, there was this view that you have to work uh, to put in your dues, you know, when you go from, from being a graduate to being an employee, that you'll do internships, that you'll work for next to nothing or indeed nothing, that it would be a stain on your CV and your reputation if you were to be seen to leave a job after you know, with less than, say, five, 10 years of service, that anything you get in your career, be it a raise, be it a development opportunity, be it a promotion, 
was as much a reward for tenure as it was a reward for merit. You know, like often companies when Gen X were entering the workforce were saying, you know, when you reach five years, then you get these things like an extra week's annual leave or, or what have you. Gen Y is a generation that's much more self-sufficient and doesn't believe in the corporate line, as it were. So Gen Y is a generation that, of course, grew up amidst the Great Recession, 2007, 8, 9. So they saw their parents, their grandparents, their older siblings lose their jobs or have their pensions restructured, going from defined benefit to defined contribution schemes or, or, or whatnot. And that taught them a really hard, fast lesson, which is you can only rely on yourself. So that's one. And of course, then this is a generation that just as they're getting into the workforce, just as they're developing some momentum, just as work is becoming interesting and they're beginning more responsibility, COVID hits. Of course, yes. And, you know, at least for Gen X, I mean, COVID was terrible for everyone, but at least for Gen X, we had some career momentum by the time COVID happened, right? We, of course, we had to adapt, but we sort of had it where, you know, most Gen Xs had an establishment, had a foundation in their careers. Gen Ys have gone through two massive tumults in a very short amount of time. And that teaches you that you can only rely on yourself, that, you know, if a company says, uh, well, you get X, Y, Z after 10 years of service in the company, their view is what? I mean, you think I'm going to be here for 10 years? I certainly <laughs> am not going to wait for 10 years just to get that. Um, and because also they know that they're never going to retire or going to retire, you know, may- maybe in their 80s or, or older, the most important thing that they can have in a role is development to make them more hireable or more able to create an income and prosperity for themselves. It doesn't have to do with tenure or loyalty. So if their companies aren't seen as constantly developing them and creating more ability for them to add value to any individual or institution that they work with, they'll move on. They'll find it elsewhere. Also, do you think the pandemic brought along that feeling of wanting and appreciating a better work-life balance? Because, of course, it did really open up hybrid working and allow people to do that real mix of going into the office and working from home. Is quality of life more important, do you think, to Gen Y than perhaps it was in our peak of our heyday? Not suggesting that you're not having your heyday now, Adam, but you know what I mean. A Gen Y more aware of a better work-life balance. Yes, for sure. So when I was researching my book, Next Generation Leadership, I interviewed hundreds of Gen Ys uh, who were high potential, so not just any random Gen Ys. People at their company said, you, you are our leaders of the future. And I asked them their views, you know, what they most wanted from their company. And work-life balance was the number one thing by far. But an interesting point that I noted in that, yes, it has to do with quality of life, for sure, a flexibility of when you're working and you know when you're not. They're rejecting Monday to Friday, nine to five culture, to go back to the earlier point that you made. But they're not saying that they necessarily won't work hard. They're just saying it won't all necessarily happen between these arbitrary days of Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. But when I asked them, what what do you mean then when you say work-life balance? It's just that, that flexibility to kind of work wherever they wish, wherever convenient. But if you ask a typical Gen X or a baby boomer what they mean when you use the phrase work-life balance, they typically interpret that more as a when statement. In other words, it has to do with how many hours you work. So if a person comes into the office and talks to a Gen X or a baby boomer and says, I want more work-life balance, immediately the recipient hears that as, oh, you want to work fewer hours. Oh, well, then you're lazy. I put in my dues. You don't want to pay your dues. You're late. And they get very aggressive and it becomes a very emotional conversation. But actually what we've just identified here is that there's semantic discord between the generations. 
we don't necessarily mean the same thing around the phrase work-life balance. So of course it's an emotive phrase when we talk about it. So I think the most important piece of advice I can give around work-life balance is if anyone comes to you, dear listener, and, and has, wants to have a work-life balance conversation and say, hold on, what do you mean when you say work-life balance? Let's just make sure we're on the same page here before we go any farther, because I've seen so many relationships go south because of that semantic discord. So it's about speaking the same language, isn't it? And as you just pointed out yes. there very clearly that sometimes the same phrase doesn't mean the same thing to different generations. And also Gen Y, I mean, I can understand this flexibility and it's a flexibility that I enjoy as a freelancer because of the nature of emails and working with different countries and different time zones. My work never falls into nine to five. And I'm sure people in a lot of companies, Convex, who are Podcast is commissioned by, I'm sure, doing things at night in their own time when emails from different countries are coming in. So that flexibility is really important and perhaps makes our Gen X way of the nine to five seem a little old fashioned. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I see a lot of companies struggling with the idea of, well, when does work happen? And, you know, should we compel people to come into the office, right? You know, should, should we say every Monday is a everyone in the office day? Of course, the problem with that is it's arbitrary. If we said Gen Y is a generation that doesn't trust institutions or the corporate line, we can't just throw out edicts, you know, like messages being torn out of Mao's little red book and saying, follow this. You know, instead, we've got to do something a little bit more empathetic, you know, and say, well, I'd like you to come into the office because we're going to be doing these things this Monday. And for those reasons, it will be very useful if we are physically together. So companies have tried, you know, many companies have tried and, uh, over the last few months in particular and failed by just saying, well, no, it's fine. It's fine, Adam. We, we have work-life balance. We just say people have to come into the office two days a week, but any team leader can determine which two days of the week. And I have to tell them, yeah, but that's still just arbitrary. It's still just top-down command and control with this sort of elusive patina across the top of it of, of your being somehow more liberal or empathetic toward your people. Much more important than the decision to have flexibility in terms of when people are in the office is why are you asking people to come in the office in the first place? If the majority of work happens with people sitting at their screens, sometimes with earbuds in, tap tapping away, does it matter? Do they ever have to be in the office? If you have, you know, once a month strategy meetings with your team, yeah, I can see that. That's a great reason to ask people to come in. But if you just say come in on Tuesdays and everyone's sitting at their respective consoles, tapping away, listening to Bono on their iPod, then why? Why did you make them come in? A lovely example of that was in the pandemic. I banked with First Direct and I rang them and had a lovely conversation with a lady who was actually sitting at home in her pajama bottoms. And she said, I used to drive an hour to the office, put on my headphones, be on my headphones all day, not communicate with any of my colleagues, drive another hour home, miss sports day, miss my kids' plays. And she was so much happier and, and relaxed and probably doing a lot better job for First Direct than she did in the call center. When you interviewed the Gem Ys, what else was important to them? Well, work-life balance, definitely. It's hugely important, but also culture. Culture was incredibly important to them too. There are a couple of indicators that told me that. One was, you know, they said when they're being interviewed for a job, the questions they're never asked, and they really wish that they were at, would be asked, would be, could I meet the people I would be working with on a daily basis? And if it does require you to be physically in the office, could I see where I'll be working? And those are all indirect ways of saying, I'd like to get the sense of the place, the smell of the place. 
what the relationships are going to be like. And that tells us that culture is experienced much more in relation to those individual one-on-one interactions that we have. So it's not the whole company. You know, a lot of companies say, culture, oh, Adam, what's taken care of? We have a culture value proposition. You know, look at it, read our values. They're in all, they're on the wall and in the lifts, et cetera. And I said, well, for any individual in your company, they probably interact with just a handful of other colleagues on a daily basis. That's where culture lives for them. It doesn't matter how you interpret culture up on the, you know, in the, in the executive suite or your expensive communications consultants who have, you know, created just the right phrases for you that completely you know, capture your mission and your vision and your values. No, it's the relationships among those half a dozen people that you work with on a daily basis. That is your culture. What that implies is that it is incredibly important for team leaders to sculpt, to manage, to foster a culture in which people feel supported, in which they can thrive, in which they feel valued. And yes, that encourages them to live the values of the organization. So it's not up to HR. It is not up to the CEO. It's at the coal face of the organization. Every leader responsible for making sure that the culture of their team is that which will foster success and engagement. And that can also mean that it could be slightly different from region to region, function to function, or country to country, depending on what that team is required to do and colored with the regional or national culture, which of course informs too how people expect to interact with one another, how we expect to have fun together, etc. You've consulted, worked with, spoken to some top names all around the world. You're just back from Indonesia on another working project, but companies on your resume would include Disney, Nike, Tesco, HSBC, Pixar, massive companies that we've all heard of. Are those kind of companies taking generational paradigms seriously now? And when you go in, how do you manage to unpick from the C-suite level? How do you get them motivated to take some action? Because I can hear them saying, oh, yes, yes, corporate culture is taken care of. We've got good culture here. How do you sort of get in and start to unpick and show them how they can knit it all back together and rebuild in a much stronger fashion? Yeah, I, generally what I recommend is doing some, allowing me to do some bit of diagnosis. You know, in other words, people in the C-suite saying, sure, our culture is this and how we engage our people is that. And I say, okay, that's fantastic. Now, can I just take a few days to go, you know, wand- freely uh, wander around the organization and talk to people and ask them the same questions and see what answers I get? Because generally, the way I encourage people to change, even organizations that are doing a great job, you know, to help them even do more, to be even more willing to adapt and evolve with the youngest generations entering the workforce is to show them the disconnect between their views or perceptions of what is and other people's perceptions and views and values of of what is happening in, in the organization. Once they're confronted with that, then it's not about taking my word for it or relying on my expertise, however you define that. If I can show the gaps, then that Uh, I find is generally the strongest motivator for internal transformation. And how important is it for companies to be very aware of this in order for them to grow and thrive and retain this young, fresh, brilliant talent that's out in the marketplace now? I think the key word you said there is retain. That's the big so what in most cases. When companies ask me, why should I care? you know, about different generational paradigms. Usually the first reason I give them is the youngest generations in the workforce are the least loyal. 
As a matter of fact, my research tells me that they are typically not expecting to stay with any given employer more than two to five years. Really? Gosh, Hugh- that's not Hugely long, different. Yes. Not long at all. Yeah. And hugely different from Gen X and from baby boomers. Two to five years. And in fact, over a third are much closer to the two years than the five years. Gosh. So, you know, a th- maybe a third of the Gen Ys you have hired, I have already saying I'm probably not going to stay more than 24 months unless- you give them some good reasons to stay, which include work-life balance, which include culture, which include, as I mentioned, development opportunities. And those are things you have to give sooner rather than later. And always explicitly demonstrate to people that you're helping contribute to how they can add value to the organizations, the suppliers, the partners, the colleagues, the customers, the clients that they work with every day. And not wait and say, you know, well, we'll do that after, you know, a year, once they get their feet under them. They will not have that kind of patience. We have to immediately start adding value to people who are already valuable rather than saying, well, we only add contribute value to our people beyond a salary once they demonstrate something back. We have to be a lot more generous with developing and fostering care for our people. When you wrote your first book, it sounds to me like you mind a rich seam of information, valuable information from Gen Y. And you talked when I came to listen to you speak about reverse mentoring. Just explain what that is. And is that a way of companies learning from the people that work for them rather than it always being the other way around? Yeah, it certainly is. And that's a question I often get asked. Well, how do I know what my people are thinking? Uh, and, you know, and be honest with me. And the only way to do that is you have to be able to create an honest relationship. And that's hard to sort of breach the gaps, the chasms between senior execs and junior employees in an organization. So one of the main things I do encourage people to do is, as you say, Helen, absolutely is get a reverse mentor, get a very junior person, a very young person to mentor you about how they use social media, how they communicate with their peers and colleagues in their age. If they were doing business development, you know, for other Gen Ys or teenagers or whatnot, what would they do? What, what do they want to get out of work? What do they want to get out of this company? What are, the, what are their expectations? What would encourage them to stay? Let's not make assumptions about what the answers to those questions are. And a reverse mentoring relationship is just that, just like a mentoring relationship which is based on a foundation of trust and confidentiality, so too would a reverse mentoring relationship. Finding someone that you can say, look, in this reverse mentoring relationship, I am the junior. I will sit at your knee and learn from you. I'm going to ask you questions and I want you completely unfiltered to just answer them. And I will never you know, hold your answers against you and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This, of course, also means that your mentor reverse mentor relationship should never be with a boss to direct report. It should be someone else. But then you learn firsthand and it's okay to have multiple mentoring and reverse mentoring relationships, you know, because you might think, well, this is just a sample of one. Fine. Have one reverse mentoring relationship for three months, develop another reverse mentoring relationship for another three months, et cetera. What I find too is people will be delighted to be able to give the bosses in their organization unfiltered feedback of their views. It's certainly a platform that I don't think Gen X's and baby boomers had very often. No, and I can definitely (laughs) see the benefits of that. And also you talked about embracing, I love this phrase, side hustles. What did you mean by Mm. that? The side hustle are just those activities that people are doing outside of the formal brief of their work. We all know this, don't we? A lot of our colleagues, they're running charities or working on the side, or they have little entrepreneurial ventures. They maybe set up a website, whatever it might be. And often an organization reflexively responds to those with under no circumstances will you do that. We assume that it competes 
with the mission of the organization when the vast majority of these things have nothing to do with the organization and our people are pursuing those passions, those side hustles on their own time. But what are they gaining from doing those things? Well, they're probably gaining entrepreneurial skills. And by the way, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is one of the main qualities that companies are saying they need more of in their organization. They're developing leadership skills, which you didn't have to pay for. True. They're developing <laughs> you know, business development skills, customer relationship skills, et cetera, et cetera. You know, setting up processes and systems to make an organization more efficient. Whatever it might be, all these things they're getting years before they would have gotten it in your organization. And if they're doing it on their own time and it doesn't compete with the mission of the organization, why would you automatically tissue reject that? It's a great way to help encourage engagement and demonstrate that you want your people to grow as quickly as possible or as quickly as they will wish themselves to grow and develop. And you have happy teams. Happiness is important, isn't it? If people are enjoying interests on the side, whatever entrepreneurial projects they may be, or charity work or whatever, that all makes the person a happier person in their work life, I think. For sure. What about corporate and social responsibility? And I'm thinking of giving to charities and also sustainability. Is that something that a Gen Y person would look at in a company? Do they want to see that kind of responsibility shining through? They do. Yeah, for sure. And we can't greenwash it, right? We can't just sort of have vague promises of how we're supporting the environment or the community by saying, for example, well, the company has donated jerseys to the you know community football team or something like that. That's not really CSR. I mean, I'm not saying don't do that, but we need something much more fundamental, much more ingrained, you know, much more under the skin of the organization so that people can see that it is committed to a more sustainable world. And of course, that's not just environment, and that is absolutely critical. It certainly is the communities in which we operate as well, any stakeholder groups that the organization encounters just through the process of doing its day-to-day -day business. And Gen Y will leap off that train in a heartbeat if they think that the organization is not committed to uh, creating a more just, a more sustainable world. And so it should be, because organizations have said, you know, for too long, how do we look like we're making a difference without actually having to do any of the hard work? But if our employees are voting with their feet and organizations are facing a resignation crisis, and we know we are in the midst of one, then surely this is reason enough to actually start to, to take this seriously. If, and if not for the case of our employees, for our customers. Because we also know that people buy based on the reputation of the organization. And reputation is incredibly fragile in this day and age where information is so ubiquitous with social media. Companies cannot recover from reputational damage as quickly or as easily as they were able to in the past. And it doesn't take much where all of a sudden you're facing a tsunami of bad press that you have no control over. That's the other issue with, with social media, right? It's the most decentralized network that we have in the world. So you can't control the message. So the only way to avoid those problems is not by working harder to control the message, but working harder to make sure that any messages about you are positive because of what you're doing, not what you're saying. We've noted some big differences between Gen X and Gen Y. I look at my kids over the tea table, one of them is off to university. What about Gen Z, Gen Z? Yeah. Are they going to be very different to Gen Y? 
There will be differences, for sure. If they weren't, then we wouldn't have necessarily said, you know, there is a new generation. If you look at any article book on generations, the birth years of a generation are typically not in precise brackets of years, like exactly every 20 years. Sometimes it's 18 years, sometimes it's 24 years. Why? Because people are looking to see when are the paradigms different enough that we can then say, okay, now we're in a new generation. And so the reason we even have a Gen Z is because we know that they are sufficiently different from Gen Y. Otherwise, they would simply be more younger Gen Ys. And usually, a generation is more like the generation that's two generations above them. Ah. So in other words, Gen Z is, we, we don't know for sure yet, but it is likely, if history has anything to say about this, that Gen Z will be more like Gen X. So what do we know? already know? What are some leading indicators of that? Well, Gen Y, for example, because they know they don't rely on institutions, you know, you can't trust institutions. They're not big savers, right? A lot of Gen Ys have said, like, I never want a mortgage. I never want to be in debt. I never want to have things that will kind of hold me down and make me work harder for someone else, et cetera. You know, like if, for example, for a while, there was a big, when I worked for food and beverage companies, they say for Gen Ys, they don't want to buy like a jar of spice. Like they don't want to buy a jar of ground cinnamon. They want a single serving, <laughs> a tiny <laughs> packet of like 0.3 grams of cinnamon, right? So they don't have to store the cinnamon. <laughs> Gen Z are apparently much more into saving money, for example, having piggy banks, having opening a bank account, maybe more willing to you know, take out a mortgage or get a loan in order to do something with that capital, possibly more willing to be more loyal to an employer. Hard to say at this stage. Here's an interesting point, because this is clearly Gen Z, also digital natives, but more willing to open a book, you know, an honest to God physical book with pages made of wood pulp and everything. There's much more of that, uh, a bit of a throwback to that extent in terms of, you know, buying vinyl, versus digital music. So it's interesting. We'll keep our eye on this. But in the next few years, because Gen Z, as you said, is just entering university or just entering the workforce. So we're going to need a couple of years to, of observation to be able to know for sure. At this point, we're guessing, but those are early indicators. I like the fact that your work is always evidence-based, always based on strong evidence. And even the things you just said there really resonate with me in terms of opening a paperback, buying vinyl, because that's exactly what goes on in my house. And okay. now I'm observing them in a completely different way. Yes. Do you have any examples, Adam, I'm not asking to name names particularly, but of companies where you've gone in and you've, you've suggested some changes and you've taken a look at how they operate and that they've made a shift and you've seen great benefits being reaped from some of the ideas and suggestions that you've put to them? Yeah, I'll give you one example. I won't name names, but an organization that said, well, we're going to aim to do two things to help uh, in, you know, engage our people and retain our youngest employees. And those things will be about development. And so they said, well, we'll make sure that when we develop our people, when we give them even jobs that are part of the day-to-day -day jobs, we'll be sure to explicitly tell them how this is contributing to their development. In other words, you know, they might be saying, I'm gonna, I would have given you this project anyway, but there are three things about this project that will be useful for you in terms of, you know, you're developing in your career. And all of a sudden, you turned one's day-to-day -day job into a development opportunity. They found that to be incredibly helpful. Two is they said, we know that people are going to leave. They're not going to stay for life. There's no, almost no such thing anymore about a, you know, job for life. But maybe we can encourage them to come back. So they've done a great job about encouraging and cultivating an alumni network of former employees 
some organizations are world-class at this and have been for years, like a lot of professional services firms, management consulting firms, some of the big uh, accounting firms, about world-class about keeping a relationship with their former employees, because they know that these people are going to be clients and customers, they're going to be net promoters or detractors, etc. But they might also come back a few years later, where they've developed all this additional experience, gained the perspective of a customer or of a competitor, whatever it might be. And again, development of that person that the company didn't have to pay for, and then they get all that benefit when the person returns. A couple of these companies that I think are on the vanguard of developing young employees, what they've told me is, we're not going to keep people for life. We hope to keep them for more than two to five years, but we know it's probably not going to be for 10 plus years. But our goal is that if we can get someone for, say, eight, nine years now, they'll leave. Okay, that'll be sad. But then maybe in 15 years, they'll come back and we'll get them for another eight to nine years. So actually, overall, you know, they've worked for us for almost like 20, say, 20, 25 years, what have you, just not all in one go. And that's a big paradigm shift for organizations to make. Like I used to say, I like you, I want to work with you, and I want to work with you as much as possible for decades, but I am acknowledging to you right now, it may not all be in one go. God, that's an interesting, interesting stuff, actually. I'd never thought about that. When you talk about all of this, you absolutely light up, Adam. There's a spark in your eyes, and you're obviously very passionate about the kind of research you do. But how did you get into all of this? Can you give us a little taste of, of your background, perhaps where you grew up, and, and who inspired you to go into this kind of field? Sure. Well, you probably tell from my accent. I grew up in the US. I grew up in Silicon Valley, California, um, and lived for a time at uni on the East Coast of the US, then moved for graduate school to Southern California. And I've lived in the UK for 23 years. My accent hasn't changed. I don't know what's going on there. I guess if it hasn't hasn't changed yet, that's never going you to happen. You shouldn't change your accent. Um, it's who you are. No, no it's who exactly. you are. But uh, I started getting into this field after I did my MBA at London Business School, I started getting into executive education because it was fascinating to me about is how can the world of work evolve and become more of a place where work life is a life more worth living. And that has to be through the views and habits of our leaders. And our leaders, therefore, require a shift. So I wanted to work with them, right, with that next generation of leaders, hence the name of my book, Next Generation Leadership. And so that was one perspective. The other perspective were the companies that were sending people to me on these executive education programs were saying, could you please fix them? <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, well, that's probably not what the answer here is. The answer is probably figuring out what's going on here amongst this young generation and then feeding that back to the company to make them better rather than they're sort of desperately trying to hold on to the past. And we can, over time, beat down our people to conform to the way I want work to happen. And of course, these decisions too being made by people who are maybe on the cusp of retirement. And you know, I'm trying to tell them in as gentle a way as possible, it's not up to you anymore about the future of your company. The future, future of your company rests with the youngest generation. I can name one name because I mentioned this in my, in my book. Zurich Insurance, they refreshed their values and mission recently. This is a venerable, very old institution, right? Over 100 years old. And they said the work of creating the new values and mission of the organization will rest with a group that will put together and they will consist of people who are under the age of 30, who are employees of Zurich. Because their CEO said, this is about the future of the company then this task should fall with the future of the company, which are not 
the people on the board, the people on the exco who are, you know, one or two years away from retirement. That was incredibly forward-looking and so powerful, not only for the people who got to do that task, that activity, but for every other young employee in that organization because of the signal that the company was making to them that you are the future of the company, that your view matters, that it's not about imposing a perspective on generation after generation. And after a while, we sort of lose track of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And also maybe a breath of fresh air for the Gen Xs and the older part of the workforce, because there's nothing like that vibrant, fresh talent coming in to to motivate all of us to move on and get better at, at what we do. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I just read a great article on this very point um, that came from, I was talking about BMW. And in in several of their departments, what they've done is tried explicitly to create more cross-generational teams, whether it's on the factory floor or in IT, but making sure that you have Gen Ys working with baby boomers. And what they discovered after a while is that the boomers were asking for more training, more development. As you say, Alan, it was opening their eyes to like these other worlds and perspectives out there that they realized that even their own careers weren't as linear, weren't as fixed, weren't as ossified as they may have expected. And with so many seismic shifts in the workplace, I'm sure that clients that you've worked for have been eternally grateful when you've gone in and helped them identify them because there is a danger, isn't there, of just companies getting on with looking at their figures, looking at where they are on the stock exchange or whatever, and actually not really taking account of what's going on in the workplace. It's a very valuable job, I think, that you're delivering there. I totally agree. I think that the, the, uh, an organization, if you, if you want to look at an organization's success, sure, you can read their strategy, sure, you can read their purpose. But most importantly, you've got to go in and look at the quality of how people interact with one another. I think you have to approach the health of a company through the lens of uh, sociologists, actually, observe behaviors. And that's when you know if an organization has the energy and the optimism and the creativity and the inspiration to outperform their competitive set. And that's why, you know, my work continuously brings me, you know, selfishly <laughs> great, great rewards just to have those experiences every day. When we met, we were both working. I was hosting an event and you were speaking. And I'm sure, I'm sure I didn't imagine this. But did you allude to a kidnapping somewhere when you were talking a bit about yourself? I wrote kidnapping down on my notebook. Yes, it's and true. And I don't yeah. know why I wrote it down. Oh. <laughs> I was talking about the differences between, specifically between Gen Y and Gen X. And I read this beautiful, there was this beautiful tweet from someone who's in Gen Y who was trying to explain a Gen X person. And they were saying, boy, Gen X, they're very different from us. Uh, you know, th when they, this was, of course, Gen X, the generation where our, both parents often worked. So Gen X, they came home from school by themselves. Their parents had given them a key to the house by the age of seven. When they got home, they learned how to make a snack and, uh, you know, do their homework before anyone else was in the house, you know, until five, six, seven PM. And then he got more dramatic and said, they know seven different ways to get blood out of clothing. They've avoided kidnapping at least three times in their lifetime. And yes, Alan, I, then I did throw in there. And yes, I do resemble that remark because during the summer, our parents just threw us out of the house, right? And just said, go play, come back by dinner time. They had no idea where we were. And so as a generation, <laughs> we, we became very sort of aware, self-aware of self-preservation, of self-protection, of uh, the confidence of saying, I can uh, look after myself. 
So yes, that's where the kidnapping. Oh God, I did worry that there was some kind of kidnap story that involved you actually being kidnapped. I'm glad it was all to do with the working working examples. (laughs) Only to the extent that yes, someone did try to get me into a car. You know that where I didn't know the person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so to that extent, yes. I do remember (laughs) Mum waving us off and sort of saying, you know, as long as you back by five for tea, and we'd go and play on an area of land that was known locally as the dumps. Right. You know, it really was the dumps. There was a broken down fridges and washing machines but it was a great adventure playground you get the odd flasher walking by that we didn't think yeah, anything right. of in those days but we were quite feral i think and Absolute, I, miss, yeah. I miss that freedom because i think <laughs> we did learn to deal with most things before i let you go i mentioned your next book sparking success which mm. is out next april give us a teaser what can we expect from sparking success yeah It goes back to this point I made earlier that I think an organization's greatest forward-looking view of whether it will thrive or not is is if you look at its ability to adapt, to create, to innovate, and to inspire. And what I ask myself is, where do we find organizations or individuals that have those qualities in abundance? And they are in the arts. They're in the creative arts. And so what Sparking Success is about is what business in any industry, even the very traditional industries, can learn from arts organizations to enhance their creative and adaptive mindset. And what's the most interesting thing you've found so far or aspect you've found so far, obviously without giving the whole book sure. away, which you won't in a minute's answer? Well, I guess the most powerful theme I've, I've investigated to date in looking at those vanguard you know, creative organizations in the arts is a tolerance for and even a celebration of failure. Ah, now that's interesting. Just expound on that and then I'll let you go. Yeah, that organizations that are willing to try and fail are those organizations that recognize that creativity is more of an output of quantity than quality, that you generally need to generate 100 ideas to get one good one rather than sit at your desk breaking out in a cold sweat, giving yourself hemorrhoids because you're clenching so hard trying to find that one brilliant idea that you won't share until it's just absolutely perfect. That's what most corporate life is like. And as a result, we have no creative ideas for years at, at, at a time. Whereas arts organizations are saying, the first 20 ideas you're going to throw out in this meeting are going to be crap. However, I'm going to encourage you to keep throwing out those ideas because the 21st idea is going to be absolutely brilliant. You may have watched The Queen's Gambit, which was a runaway success. 62 million people watched it on Netflix. The Queen's Gambit took the writer 30 years to get on screen in various forms. And Breaking Bad was turned down 39 times before it made air. So I think those are good examples of where the creative industry has changed and shifted and also not given in through failure. It'd be very easy, wouldn't it, to walk away after attempt 38 and then miss out on Breaking Bad Making Air at the Temp 39. I'm looking forward to the book coming out, Adam. It's been a pleasure chatting to you today. I'm fascinated by all the research you're doing. So uh, thank you for finding time to share some of it with us. And I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed listening to you as much as I have today. Thank you for having me. It's really fun. You're so welcome. You've been listening to advisor, author and educator Adam Kingle, giving us a flavour of Gen Y and Z and how to understand their needs in the workplace and, of course, the benefits of embracing those needs and understanding them. I'm sure you found Adam as fascinating as I have. And do look out for his next book in the spring, Sparking Success. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. 
Thanks for your company. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Join me then. 